was a hell of a weekend to be watching football, probably the most competitive set of playoff games ever in the history of the NFL. And of course, the Browns aren't in it, but the Bengals are. So there's an Ohio presence. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Lisa Garvin. Did anybody on this podcast besides me watch some of those very exciting football games? <laughs> no. No, no. I mean, it was no. on in my house while I was prepping for this podcast and my kids were watching it. But I want to know if uh, Clevelanders are going to get on like a Bengals bandwagon and start saying who day up in Cleveland. Look, look, every one of the four games ended in the final seconds. Three of them with last minute, last second field goals and one in overtime. I've never seen anything like it. These were, it was great. And you just keep sitting there thinking, why aren't the Browns a part of this? You know, they've got the young quarterback. This was the weekend when young quarterbacks blew out the old guys. It was great stuff. Maybe next year, the perpetual line we have here in Cleveland. Let's get started. How are Ohio's elected Republican leaders, including Governor Mike DeWine and Secretary of State Frank LaRose, continuing to cook the books to give Republicans an inexplicable unfair advantage in the legislative map drawing? Lisa, even with the Supreme Court slapping these guys silly for injecting their partisan nonsense into it, despite what voters said when they redesigned the system, they did it again. They're trying to sneak it through again, and it's going to be up to Maureen O'Connor as to whether they get away with it. What did they do Saturday on their deadline? Well, they made a few very slight concessions to Democrats, but the Democrats on the redistricting committee were not having it. Uh, there was a vote to approve these maps that the GOP cranked out over the last week. That was happened on Saturday, but it was without the two Democrats. They voted against these maps, the two on the commission. So these maps that were approved uh, call for the GOP to get 57 of 99 House seats and 20 of 33 Senate seats in the state. That's 58% overall, which misses the proportionality goal by four points because it's, you know, the maps are supposed to be, according to who you talk to, drawn to a 54% GOP majority and a 46% Dem minority. Um, they did favor more seats. So there are nine House districts that favor Democrats now in this redone map, but they are only favored by one point or less. On the other side, the most competitive Republican seat is favored by five points. So, you know, so these- let me stop you. Let me let me let me stop you there, though, because that that's such a key point. If they were doing this fairly, they would have equal numbers on both sides. If you want to have five districts that are that are mostly competitive within one percent on the Democratic side, you need to have five districts that are mostly competitive with one percent on the Republican side. To not do that is injecting partisanship into it, which the Supreme Court told them, stop, don't do that. The voters told you not to do that. I cannot believe how reprehensible the Republicans on this thing are. And they're defending it like it's like it's legitimate. And forget Huffman and Cup. Those guys have proven they are not operating in good faith. This is Mike DeWine, Keith Faber, Frank LaRose, all running statewide. The other two guys we don't vote for. These three guys run statewide. And man, voters better remember this. These guys are cooking the books. What else? 
Well, and, and, and Auditor Keith Faber, he basically said that the Democrats took their ball and went home because perfect proportionality wasn't agreed to by the GOP. And the Dems, on the other hand, and they were kind of slapped, too, by the by the Republicans on the redistricting committee because they apparently they the Democrats said they thought they were working with the GOP on the urban suburban districts. But when they found that that was not possible, they quickly had to draw up their own map. They really thought that they were going to come to an agreement on the same map. But when they found that was impossible, you know, they said, well, we're going to have to, you know, cough up our own map. But yeah, so Keith Faber's like, well, they weren't happy. So they took their ball and went home, which is just. Well, because they didn't work. They didn't work with the Democrats. I mean, the Supreme Court said the Constitution is clear. The voters said the seven of you will work together. And the Republicans just kicked out the Democrats and didn't work with them and rammed something unfair through. Again, this is Mike DeWine. Mike DeWine's the governor. He could stop this. He could say, guys, let's do the right thing. And they didn't. And so it be interesting to see whether Maureen O'Connor says, no, 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 we're not accepting this. Or if she says, ah, it's close enough, we're done here. But it does have to go back before them. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's stay on the topic. How do other states draw congressional congressional and legislative maps in a far better way than Ohio, greatly reducing the chances for gerrymandering that, as we just talked about, Ohio's elected leaders continue to push despite getting slapped down by the Ohio Supreme Court. Laura, this is a hell of a story by Seth Richardson. He looked at the systems that some states have put in that get rid of these elected guys, knowing that they're bozos. Absolutely. For starters, they don't let politicians draw their own boundaries. I would say that is about the most important rule that you could make because they take it out of lawmakers' hands. They don't have a dog in the fight. 15 states use redistricting commissions to determine their legislative district lines. Nine of them have members who are not politicians. That includes Michigan and California, which basically shine as the gold standard. And Arizona does a lot of things right. So Seth looked at those three states. And you think we would have learned from at least two of them since their plans are older than ours. Arizona passed it in 2000. They created an independent commission of five appointees who are appointed by politicians but can't be current politicians. And California's was in 2008. Michigan came along in 2018. It might have the best system. But basically, they say you can't be a politician. You can't even be a family member of a politician or a politician in the last six or 10 years. Uh, California and Michigan require bipartisan support, and there's a ton of public comments baked into the process. They have to share their thoughts with the public, and then they have to write a report saying how they came to this conclusion. So they can't just say, hey, this is what we did, like it or not. Also, they're not supposed to take incumbents into it, which Ohio was pretty clear in saying we want to protect the people who are already in the legislature. And I can go through each one point by point, but that is, I mean, there's some really good ideas there. Well, and Chief Justice Moran O'Connor told voters, hey, look what happened here. You might want to use the system from another state that gets these guys out of the equation because you'll never be able to trust them to do the right thing. The, the, this will have to come. The legislature won't do this. You know, Mike right. DeWine's not going to do this. They want to keep cooking the books. So this is going to have to be a citizen initiative by the legal women voters or somebody. And what's interesting is we really haven't heard from them since Maureen O'Connor said, hey, Ohio, you really should think about changing this system. I keep thinking we're going to hear from them saying, yes, we're going to work on that. We're going to get this fixed for next time. Even if we get stuck with 
four year maps that the Democrats don't agree to, we could have a new system in place in four years that just wipes these guys off the face of the redistricting map. Absolutely. And, you know, we've talked before about why people didn't seem like general Ohioans didn't seem super upset about all the gerrymandering going on, like why this wasn't something that people were raging at their representatives for. But maybe it's because it's they've been so uninvolved, whereas the other states of California and Michigan, this is an open process. They had 30,000 Californians apply to be on their 14 member commission. And in Michigan, they have a 13 member commission. The secretary of state office mailed out 250 apple sorry 250,000 applications to randomly selected voters throughout the state and 93,000 of them applied at the end they ended up with a very diverse commission people ranging from age 28 to 74 college students a lawyer a specialized uh, foster care worker a handyman an engineer so people who are not politicians but are voters and they're speaking for their their peers I keep hearing from people that say, hey, you know, we, we hear what you say in the podcast, but, you know, they're doing this in, in states where the Democrats are in charge. They're doing it, too. Like that somehow makes it OK. And every time I get it, it's like, what are you talking about? Who cares what they're doing in other states? We should get it right here. We live in Ohio. The, the Ohio and the Republicans should do the right thing. But to write this off as well, whoever's in charge gets to do this. And that's just life. And it's like, no, and. and- Ohioans do not agree that that's the right way. 70% of the voters in 2015 voted to change our, our redistricting. They wanted a more fair process. That's way more. I mean, that involves a lot of people. And the Republicans have been in power for decades in Ohio. I think we we had a story we talked about last week or the week before where it said, at least in the Senate, they've been in power for since 1990. 90, yeah. So, yeah. So it's not just the... It, it's not that people are afraid it's going to go back and forth. The Republicans have been pretty entrenched. So a whole lot of Republicans voted for this redistricting reform. Well, don't forget, too, there was a citizen initiative going on that would have put in a better system. And the Republicans in the legislature to head that off created this system and put it in front of voters, which they then are cooking as much as they can to keep the unfairness. They're really the most duplicitous elected leaders we've seen in quite some time in Ohio. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How does new Cleveland mayor Justin Bibb explain being maskless in a crowded Washington bar just hours before issuing strong advice in Cleveland that people wear masks indoors through the end of the month. Well, we talked about this Saturday when the photo popped up. The firm that sponsored this thing posted something on Facebook laying it all out, and there was Justin Bibb in a crowded bar not wearing a mask. And we said, is this a gotcha? And he said, no, it's not really a gotcha. When you are advocating in the most important story of our time that people take a certain step and then you don't follow that step, that looks bad. The mm-hmm. new mayor should not be doing that. You should be the leader. You should be the example. What's his explanation? Yeah. Well, so, yeah, this was so disappointing. So Bibb had assembled this COVID task force this month, and the first public act they took was for Bibb to issue this mask advisory last week, strongly encouraging people to wear masks indoors. And we kind of made fun of it because, well, I mean, a good time for that would have been when Cuyahoga County was at the apex of the Omicron surge a few weeks earlier. 
Well, then we see on social media, these photos pop up just hours before issuing that. And, you know, he's hanging out with a bunch of fellow Ohio mayors and lawyers and politicians at this meet and greet at happy hour in D.C. and w- without a mask. And in fact, you know, almost no one was wearing a mask. Also, it's important to mention that D.C. currently is mandating masks in restaurants and bars for for anyone not actively eating and drinking. And it didn't appear to be the case that any of these dignitaries in these photos were, you know, doing that at the time that the photos were taken. So, you know, Bip doing this and then turning around and strongly advising Clevelanders to wear masks, just the hypocrisy was so glaring. So, yeah, it's not a gotcha. I I was fully on board with doing this story. So we asked Bib over the weekend what gives, and his spokeswoman said the event was closed to the public and attendees had to show proof of vaccination and ID. Indeed, you know, that much was noted on the invitation to the event, which had been, you know, circulating on social media as well. But she also said that they had to take a COVID test before entering, and that wasn't noted on the invitation. So, you know, not sure what what what's up with that. But, you know, I don't know. Whatever. Not a good look in your first month of office to be so hypocritical about something so important. Yeah, but well, if, let I me can... ask you this, too. The, the Retzel and Andrus was the firm that put this shindig on for all the mayors and right. Marsha Fudge was there. And they didn't they worked against Justin Bibb in the mayor's election. They were they were working with Kevin Kelly. Do you think there's a chance they put that photo up just to embarrass him because they they knew they had him? I mean, it's his fault. He should have known going into a gathering by a firm that was working against them in the election. He should be on his best behavior and not make himself vulnerable but I did wonder whether this photo was put out there specifically to embarrass You had mentioned that over the weekend. I thought that might have been a little bit of a cynical take. It did seem like, you know, the the uh, the Retzel uh, representative who had posted these photos seemed pretty proud of the turnout. And and the pip picture of Bib was kind of blended in with a whole bunch of others of, you know, Marsha Fudge and, and other people that we would recognize from the Cleveland area. So um, so I was kind of like, ah, but then when you explained it, I was like, well, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> so but I if, if I could if I could jump in here and say, okay, how many of the other Ohio mayors there were popped for not wearing a mask? Because nobody in that photo was wearing a mask. And I, I you know, so I, I I I do feel it's like a little bit of a gotcha. I mean, I hate to play no, the mask police, I mean, but hours later he puts this very official and important notice out saying mask advisory, you know, everyone should wear masks in indoor spaces and and you know, I mean that's I think that's the timing of that. Yeah, that, you got to live by it. If you and look, you're the thing you got to remember when you're mayor, and he's new and he'll learn, is you're the leader. You lead by example, and so if people had seen pictures of him at a crowded bar wearing a mask, his message the next day would be more meaningful. There were other pictures um, that were published, Lisa, and in in others there were people wearing masks i mean they, they, this was not a maskless thing there were people taking the precautions he it just wasn't him anyway it's um hopefully it's it's a learning curve for the new mayor and he will be paying attention the next time he knows he might be photographed it's today in ohio senator rob portman has been all over the place sharing his expertise on ukraine in the past week after his fifth or sixth trip there a week ago How did he become so interested in Ukraine, Lisa? 
Well, uh, it kind of stems from uh, Northeast Ohio, actually. Um, he was a longtime friend of George Voinovich, who was, you know, the former Cleveland mayor and the Ohio governor. And that got him interested in Eastern European affairs. But Portman right now is the co-chair of the Senate Ukraine Caucus, and he's also on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. This I did not know, but, you know, apparently there was a Ukrainian population that came to Cleveland in the 1880s and settled in the Tremont area. And apparently there's still a large population in Parma, which I thought was mostly Polish, but of course that's still Eastern European. But uh, uh, Portman took his first trip to Ukraine back in 2014 when he was asking the USA and the European Union for support to eliminate the Russian-backed government in Ukraine. And he's been on this media blitz after uh, President Joe Biden kind of dithered on how to handle the minor incursion by the Russian military, which is looking major, more major by the day. And he said that we have to support Ukraine. We have to impose severe consequences on Russia if they attack. And he called the Biden comment a big mistake. Of course, the Biden administration walked it back, but the damage was already done. But yeah, so he's got a deep... Uh, you know, uh, deep knowledge on uh, the Ukraine. Yeah, it's the kind of knowledge you kind of wish would stick around a little longer. He'll be gone after this year. Right. And I wonder who'll be the next senator to take on the mantle. He does have an expertise. And so everybody's been talking to him about his thoughts on it. And he clearly does understand it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What was the reaction in Ohio and across the nation to the announcement Friday that Intel will be building a big microchip factory in the state? Laura, of course, we broke this news two weeks ago through the diligent reporting of Andrew Tobias. But following the big announcement of it Friday, there was quite a bit of reaction. Yeah, the rest of the country started paying attention. Apparently, we are coining a new term, the Silicon Heartland. Uh, that's what we're going to be, <laughs> as opposed to the Silicon Valley. But the stories were generally positive in the national media from the New York Times and the Washington Post. They noted the inexpensive land outside Columbus, the access to Ohio State University, and the ease of travel to the rest of the country. Though there was some skepticism about Intel catching up to international competitors. And there's also some information about other expansions that Intel has done and chip factories going into places like Texas. But the national papers went to the White House ceremony before the one in Columbus. Joe Biden was there. He lauded this development as a truly historic investment in America and American workers. And he helps, hopes it will restore the industrial Midwest. I believe it was Sherrod Brown who said the Rust Belt is dead. I mean, I don't know how many times we've declared that in the past, but we're now the Silicon heartland. So looking to the future. But yeah, I mean, I think people were, I don't know if nationally they were surprised that this is where Intel picked because it's not like we've, I mean, this is the biggest economic development project in Ohio history and we are not known for high tech uh, futuristic thinking here. But yeah, good news and everybody seemed to applaud it. Although we still don't know what Ohio was giving away to no, get here. We're gonna we don't know. And that. Andrew definitely pointed that out. He, I liked his story where he talked about the announcement had the atmosphere of a, a victory lap for DeWine and that he's kind of been like down the whole last year as you know COVID continues and he's taken his kicks from the legislature. But this was a big victory moment for him to be able to say that we're going to have a, this $20 billion, two factories, employ 3,000 workers and maybe get up to $100 billion in spending and 10,000 people over the next decade. I mean, I can't even imagine how this is going to change that part of Ohio and probably a lot of 
Ohio because of it. Yeah, I mean, it's a big deal for him. I mean, he's definitely got something he can use to campaign on. This is a, a strong piece of evidence in his favor. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb assembled a powerhouse group of community members to help him draft his plan for his first 100 days and beyond, breaking them into a bunch of task forces. Layla, we filed a records request to find out what all those groups recommended. What did we find out? The, the recommendations are, are meant to, to inform Justin Bibb's priorities for these first 100 days, and he's already... Pardon me. He's already pulled off a handful of the of these over his first three weeks, including, you know, his pledge to invest millions in lead safe housing and, and changes to the way Cleveland police use the diversion center for those with mental health or substance use disorders. You know, remember, they no longer have to check in with the city prosecutor before availing themselves of this facility. So in these reports that Courtney Astolfi got her hands on last week were some sweeping reforms that could really change operations across a lot of departments. And and also there were some more granular recommendations aimed at tackling specific issues. So among my personal favorites, it, under economic development, implement a reentry business enterprise certificate program to get more city contracts into the hands of business owners who were formerly in, involved in the criminal justice system. To me, that's kind of mind blowing. That's, that that really does. Uh, that's a game changer for a lot of people reentering the community from um, from the prison system. Um, evaluate the feasibility of, of making RTA free for all riders in Cleveland. I mean, how how revolutionary is that? Pretty pretty amazing. Um, under health across all city departments, focus more on the social determinants of health, like connecting people with transit housing, and better environmental conditions. So that would obviously require a very big legislative agenda that would you know, involve enacting a law preventing landlords from discriminating against tenants who pay with housing vouchers. That's one of my pet issues. And, and a pay-to-stay law, which would allow those people who are threatened with eviction to stay in their homes if they pay down their debts. There is also the recommendation to create new health-related boards or commissions, uh, like a, a children's council, an opioid strategy board, or a board of health. Um, you know, presumably instead of the city's current public health structure, which is you know a health department controlled directly by the mayor. And then to modernize city hall, set aside 30.8 million in federal aid in 2022 uh, for participatory budgeting. We've written a lot about this, so that residents can decide how to spend that 30 million dollars on on uh, on projects that directly affect their lives. Education, make changes to the structure of city government to support youth, including the creation of a mayor's cabinet on children and youth. Justin Bibb talked a lot about this on on his uh, during his campaign. Um, that would, you know, they would really address the overall well-being of young people uh, up to age 24. Under equity, create offices of Asian outreach, immigrant affairs, black women's equity office, hire city hall liaisons for the LGBTQ plus community, um, particularly one for, for the public safety department. And, all right. Yeah. So, so, so there's no way he can do all of this, but so, so now it's up to him and his staff to see what they want to do and move forward. The last time I can remember anything like this happening was 20 years ago when Jen Campbell assembled a bunch of people to talk about the lakefront and they came up with gazillions of ideas and then her staff narrowed them down to to what she ultimately developed. Uh, you could see it on the west side with what they do with did, the shoreway. Did, did Frank Jackson have a similar, put together a similar committee system? I don't for, think so. No? Okay. Interesting. I don't believe so. 
Um, so, so this is, it's a great thing he did by getting all these people involved. You get them to feel like they're participating in government. Uh, there's still a lot of hope for that. That Justin Bibb is going to do some really dramatic things when, when Courtney Astolfi was working on this story, they, they didn't want to give the records because they were like, we want to polish this up and yeah. give it to him in February. And it's like, well, welcome to the records log. Give us the records. <laughs> but but they did say they plan some sort of presentation in February, right? Yeah, they did. They were reluctant to hand over these kind of rough drafts, but we weren't going to publish 10 documents for the public to see their misspellings or whatever. I mean, you know, we just wanted the goods. And uh, yeah, so sometime in February, they said they're going to be rolling these out in a more formal way. And, you know, we expect probably the spring, you know, he'll be speaking on these at the state of the city address. And probably nailing down some of what he will actually be tackling uh, this this first year. Yeah, it could be exciting. I mean, modernizing City Hall, getting rid of the manual typewriter is probably a big step forward, right? <laughs> <laughs> Giving everyone an email address and <laughs> that's right. <laughs> right. fax machines even, be damned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. What do we know about the dark money groups supporting Mike DeWine's re-election as Ohio governor? Groups that emerged coincidentally on the day DeWine was very publicly crowing about the big win in attracting Intel to build the big factory in Ohio. Lisa, the, all of a sudden, there's lots of ads being planned for Mike DeWine, but not by Mike DeWine. Right. And there are several packs out there. This this one that we're talking about is the Free Ohio Super Pack, brand new. It was just incorporated on January 15th. Um, and because it's a super PAC, eventually it will probably have to disclose its donors. But the treasurer for this pack is Mike McCauley. He's a Utah-based guy. He also ran a super PAC called Protecting Ohio Action Fund to elect DeWine's daughter, Alice DeWine, as the prosecutor of Greene County, an election that she lost. That was in 2020. Um, but uh, they were able to keep that money quiet for a while. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this goes. There are a couple more too. One that I stumbled on in Facebook in a video ad, Ohioans for Free and fair elections. And I thought, well, what is that? It sounds like a redistricting <laughs> thing. Well, no, it's a Mike yeah. DeWine campaign ad, <laughs> which is kind of and, a non -sector. Go ahead. Well, with what he's been doing on the redistricting commission, he's not for free and fair elections. <laughs> he's trying to cook the books. So it's really a misnomer. <laughs> you know, what surprises me about this is that Jim Renacci is his opponent in the primary, but Jim Renacci doesn't have a lot of money and he's so fringe that he really doesn't have a chance in beating DeWine in the primary, but, but they're going to spend money now to make sure, I guess. Right. There's another, uh, yet another one called the Ohio conservative conservative restoration project. They've been running ads on YouTube and these ads are bashing opponent, Jim Renacci. So yeah, he's, he's, these dark money people are trying to cover all the bases with DeWine who is not very popular with this party right now. So he probably needs all the help he can get. I just, it's interesting that you're going to bash Renacci because that would seem to give Renacci credibility. I would have thought that ignoring him would be the smarter way to go. But by bashing him, you're actually telling people he's a threat, which could, I guess, alter the, the way it comes out. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Volkswagen has been paying big for its sinister plot to fool regulators and spew pollutants into the air with its cars. And now Attorney General Dave Yost has won a victory for Ohio. 
as compensation for the pollutants emitted here. Laura, what did he get? He got $3.5 million for Ohio to be shared between his office and the Ohio Environmental Protection Agency, all to be used to help the environment. But you're right, reprehensible is the word I wrote down when reading about this scheme, diabolical. Basically, the claim is the automaker manipulated computer software so that they could mask carbon dioxide emissions. So when they were in the shop, it showed that they had low emissions, but out on the road, they were spewing all sorts of pollution. And people bought these cars believing they were low impact to the environment. So if I owned one of them, I would be really angry with Volkswagen. Well, the the idea that they would intentionally do it and pollute our air is what is so frightening. And they paid big. I mean, the, the, the federal government went after him hard. They tried to argue they shouldn't be liable to the state of Ohio because they paid all these other damages. Yost fought that, I think, all the way up to the Supreme Court to, to win the right to sue them. And they finally caved, realizing they were going to lose. So it, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a huge amount of money, but it's but it's not nothing. And if they put it to the right to abating pollution it's a good thing so salute to dave yost for holding them right. accountable originally they wanted more than a hundred billion dollars um per year over a multi-year period based on like a twenty-five thousand dollar per day of non-compliance for each of the fourteen thousand vehicles on the road so obviously we didn't get that but it i mean I, you can't buy this kind of bad publicity right so hopefully they'll be shamed into doing the right thing I don't think anybody went to prison, and that really should have sent somebody to prison. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it did overseas. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We're going to go long because we got to do this question. Do we have yet another way that the administration of Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish is bumbling the management of Cuyahoga County's jail? What did reporter Adam Faris find out about how the county investigates or doesn't investigate deaths in the jail. Layla, this question is acute because we just had another death in the right. jail. So so a death at the jail is supposed to kick off this series of reviews with the first by the staff sergeant on duty at the time of the death, and then medical officials at the jail are supposed to conduct a clinical mortality review of each death, and the jail administrator is then supposed to conduct an administrative review of each jail death. And that review is supposed to identify facility operations, policy and procedures that should be improved following each death. But Adam found that they had failed for more than a year to follow that protocol and produce these reports analyzing inmate, de inmate deaths. More than a year ago, Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer had requested reports about three deaths that happened in 2020. They included an inmate who died of a fentanyl overdose and one who died of heart disease and one who uh, died after authorities said a cellmate attacked him. And a county spokeswoman said Thursday the county doesn't have any jail death reports to release. And in fact, she was unsure if if the jail administrator, Rhonda Gibson, who is the one who enacted this policy, conducted any reviews of the deaths. This is just flabbergasting. How do you drop the ball on this after everything they've been through, after the criminal case against the jail director, after 30 lawsuits have been filed against the county over the treatment of inmates the county has spent millions so far on nine of those lawsuits to settle them. There has to be some accountability for this, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, this was stunning. After, like you said, after everything that's gone on, after all of the headlines about just how terrible a steward Budish was of the jail, 
they put in these reforms, they say they've turned it around. And then when Adam goes looking for the reports, like what, what reports, what reports? Oh, oh, oh we're supposed to do reports. Huh? I, yeah. Well, what are we oh, going to do about gosh. that? It's astounding because we're dealing with death, Yes. you know, and maybe, maybe the person that died last week, it's a natural cause death and there's no wrongdoing on the jail, but you're never going to know what actually happened if you don't fully investigate. And this was supposed to be the fix. Yep. 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 I, it's it's astounding to me. And like you said, these are people whose lives were lost in their care. I mean, there's nothing more important than finding out more about how that came to be and what can be improved after everything that has transpired. This this is. And if, uh, yeah. And if you listen to this podcast, understand that this is the value of watchdog journalism. If Adam Faris wasn't asking the questions, no one would know this is going on. At every step of the the scandal involving the jail, it's been Adam Faris and Courtney Astolfi and the team at Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer that got it all. No one else has worked this. Nobody even picks up the stories. We're alone in doing it. This is the value of it. So if you're not a supporter of us, please subscribe to Cleveland.com. <laughs> That's Shameless. it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who supports us at Cleveland.com. And thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with another discussion of the news.